it is my joy with the remainder of our time to open up God's word. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Obviously this morning is a a special day for us with the presentation of, of Wade and Drew. And it's a significant milestone in the life of our church, so significant that I really believe it's necessary for us to take the Sundays over the course of these 30 days and really ground ourselves on what the Bible says about eldership. And so we're going to begin a study today on a biblical understanding of elder leadership. I realize for some of you this may be a review. We praise God for that. Others of, for others of you this may be brand new. But I think as we start this process, it's really important that we do so with an understanding of why this matters and where this comes from. And the reason for that is because the direct, there is a direct correlation between the health of the elder team and the health of the local church. Unfortunately, for some of you, you've learned this firsthand in the negative sense. Uh, my heart has been grieved to hear from so many of you that are coming to our church because the elders in your previous church were unfaithful, either in their theology or their character or in the manner of their shepherding. And because of that, some of you have had to watch churches that you love fall apart uh, or even completely close their doors because of the lack of faithful leadership. Others of you, like me, have had the exact opposite experience, when, which you've seen what it's like for a group of elders to lead and shepherd a flock with humility and faithfulness and unity. That's what I experienced serving alongside the men at Countryside Bible Church. Because you have seen that modeled and you've seen the healthy fruit that that kind of leadership produces in the church, perhaps you're a little bit nervous about the idea of adding new elders because you want to make sure that our church maintains the same kind of faithful leadership as do I. Still others of you may be coming to North Lake Bible Church from a completely different denominational background in which the churches you've been a part of didn't use the term elder at all, or maybe they used the term but meant something different by that word than we mean when we use the word elder. It's because of all of that and God's providence as he's brought all of us together here from different backgrounds and different uh, experiences to one church that I think it's important that we ground ourselves on this issue of biblical eldership in the local church. And the truth is, if we're going to have a truly biblical understanding of elder leadership in the local church, then the place that we have to begin is actually not the topic of eldership at all. And the reason for this is that in order for us to live in humble unity and faithfulness in our leadership and in our membership, we have to be unanimously and unwaveringly committed to one key truth, and it's this. Jesus Christ is the undisputed Lord of the church. Jesus Christ is the undisputed Lord of the church. This one glorious truth is the only reason that we can ever appoint faithful but imperfect men as leaders of a local church with confidence and assurance. It's because when we appoint elders in the church, we're not giving them lordship over the church. We're calling them to be faithful stewards and under shepherds who carry out the commands of Christ for his church. Elders are not the owners of the church. They are simply stewards. And to see this in scripture, we're going to look with the remainder of our time at two key truths from the book of Ephesians. Truth number one is this. Christ is the only head of the church. 
Christ is the only head of the church. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to read from verse 22 to the end. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, before we dive in, let me just give you the the quick overview of the book of Ephesians and the many truths that have led Paul to say what he has just said before in chapter 1. Obviously, Paul is the author here. This is one of his prison epistles, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And it's divided neatly in half. The first three chapters deal primarily with doctrine. The, The second half, the last three chapters, deal with the application of that doctrine. The theme of this letter is the eternal plan of God. And this is the reason we read this chapter leading up to our time together earlier this morning. It's because in the beginning of this chapter, he begins to explain how it is that God has accomplished our salvation. He says God chose us before the foundation of the world. He predestined that through Jesus Christ, we would be redeemed and adopted into the family of God. And he gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance that awaits us in glory. But in verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul turns his attention to a prayer of thanksgiving. And specifically, in verses 18 and 19, he prays for these believers to know three things in particular. He prays that God would help them to know the hope of their calling, the riches of their inheritance, and the power of God towards his own. Now, it's that last item there, the power of God towards his own, that lays the context for the passage we're going to be looking at now. Because in verses 19 to 23, Paul expounds upon that last idea of the power of God towards us by showing us four different ways that the Father has displayed his power toward us in the Son. Here are the four ways. In verse 20, Christ's resurrection. In verse 20 and 21, Christ's exaltation. In the first half of 22, Christ's authority. And then finally, Christ's headship, Christ's headship. Now that last display of God's power towards the saints in Christ is where we're going to focus our time this morning. But before we do that, we have to look first at this third display of his power through Christ, Christ's authority, because it leads into the fourth. Look back again at verse 22. It says, and he, that's God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, and that is Christ. The Father put all things in subjection under the feet of Christ. Notice that God the Father is the the subject of the verse, grammatically speaking. It's the Father performing the action of the word put. And we see that back in verse 17, that connection of the Father. But it says specifically, he put all things... In subjection under his feet. This ties in well with what we've seen in Hebrews. And you might notice in your Bible, there's likely a footnote there, a cross-reference that says Psalm 8, verse 6. And that's because this idea comes from the fact that Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of what is there in Psalm 8. We've seen this in Hebrews as well. Let's put that passage on the screen. This is Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8, but specifically... I want to look at verse 6. 
It says, speaking of, of mankind, God to mankind, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, in context, the psalm is talking about God putting mankind above the rest of creation. And in a, in a real sense, because we're made in the image of God, we still are overruling creation, but we all know because of sin, creation is rebelling against man's authority. But Christ, here's the point, Paul's saying in Christ, the perfect man, the God-man, the fullness of this will come to pass, that all things will be in subjection to Christ. We see this in Philippians chapter 2 in the beautiful passage in verses 9 and 10. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this of course doesn't mean that all created things are currently obeying Christ's rule. We know that that's not true. Man is still sinning. Satan and his demons are still active in their rebellion against God. But it does mean that he is on his throne and they are accountable to his leadership and will be judged for their rebellion against him. And one day Christ will literally reign over them in perfection on this planet. Now all of that sets the backdrop for what I really want us to see this morning. And that is the fourth display of God's power. Look back at verse 22 again. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Church, this is a beautiful verse. Notice the change in verb. Notice the verb he uses here. And gave him. That's a significant verb because the rest of the verbs leading up to this have all been about Christ as the recipient. Christ being the recipient of, of the action of God. He raised him, he seated him, he put him. But here he changes the verb to the verb gave and breaks the pattern. And here Christ is the one given to someone else. I love this verb. Because look who the recipients are of this verb. Who did he give him to? The church. And the Father gave him as head over all things to the church. And who makes up the church? Well, this is the universal church. This is every single believer of all time. That means this morning, if you're a true Christian, that you are part of this church like the rest of us, and it means God the Father gave Jesus to you, to us. But lest we get confused by this, if somehow he means to insinuate that we have authority over Christ, that would be completely backwards. Look at how he phrases this. He says, he, he, he gave him as head over all things to the church. What's really happening here is this is the crescendo of God the Father's power in Christ. He's raised him, he's exalted him, he's put everything under his feet. This is the most exalted being of, of all time, of, from eternity past to eternity future. He gave that one, the one who's already ruler of all, specifically in a special way to the church. He will preside as head of the church. 
Just think about that. The Father gave him. What a gift. Now, in case you're having a hard time putting the pieces together as to why this is such a great gift, just think about it this way. What if the head of the church was anyone else? What if the Roman Catholics were right and the Pope was the head of the church? What if the head of the church was a pastor or a group of elders? What if the head of the church was, in fact, any other man or woman on the planet? The church would be doomed. If the church was ruled by any human being other than the God-man Jesus Christ, it would be powerless over sin, it would be abused by man's sinful desire for power, and it would be vulnerable to any and every attack from God's enemies. If the church has a head other than Jesus Christ, in short, the church will fail. The gospel will not go forth. People will not grow in holiness. The church will not live in unity with one another. The church will have no strength to serve and no power to fight against the fiery darts of the devil. The church will be lost. And so it is that Paul says, And he gave him to the church gave him to the church. Now do you see the gift that this is? This is not just anyone. It is the one who has not only been raised but exalted, who's not only been exalted but all things have been placed under his feet. He is the ruler of all. God the Father gave that one to the church. But if Christ is called the head, then that obviously assumes there's a body connected to that head. And that's how the illustration continues in verse 23. The church, which is his body. In keeping with that illustration, to have a living head, we understand you have to have a living body. The church is that body. It highlights our special union with Christ. Though it is true, Jesus is the ruler and Lord of all. Those who rebel against him and those who do not. He doesn't need an invitation to be Lord and Master. He simply is Lord and Master. But for us as the church, Paul's emphasizing that we have a special union with Christ that we understand from our baptism into Christ, 1 Corinthians 12 and other places. The Holy Spirit continues to fill us as his people, Ephesians 5. And we are then united to him, it says, as intimately as your head is united to your body. He's thinking of of the most intimate, unifying illustrations in the human mind. The body, and later he calls us the bride of Christ. These are the most intimate ways that we understand that two things can be connected. We are the body of this head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we move on, I just have to pause there and say that this is only true of those who have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here with us this morning and you would admit that you're, you've never bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that this is not speaking at this time of you, but if you will humble yourself even today, recognizing that Jesus Christ truly is Lord of all, the one who was raised from the dead, who gave his life as a sacrifice for your sins. If you will humble yourself as a sinner, confessing Jesus as Lord, you will be saved, turning from your sin in repentance and faith. But that is the only entrance into Christ by his grace and thus entrance into his church, his body, his bride. 
But for those of us who are part of Christ's body through salvation, Paul now explains that we're not only connected intimately with with him, but with one another. A healthy body is not only connected rightly to its head, it's rightly connected to the other parts of the body. This brings us into a unique, special fellowship. Someone said to me in passing this morning as they listened to you all talking and fellowshipping together just how sweet is the fellowship of the saints. Where does that come from? You ever met a believer that was a stranger on a plane or something and you begin to talk and realize you're both in Christ and all of a sudden there's this instant connection and you're rejoicing in who Christ is together? Where does that come from? It's because the Spirit resides in us and we are one body with one head. This illustration affects not only our connection to him but our connection to one another. And then he gives us this mysterious, humbling statement. Verse 23, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The fullness of him. He calls the church the fullness of Christ. Now there's a lot of debate on what this means, but as you look at this, as you step back and just study the words in context, I think he's just fleshing out this illustration of Christ the head and we the body. We are the fullness of Christ in the same way that, that your, your body fills out your, your head. We are connected to him. It doesn't mean that Christ is in any way deficient uh, or that he's not self-sufficient. We, we understand he is God. He doesn't need us, but he's chosen in his sovereign, gracious plan to bring us into unity with himself. This was his plan, that we would be the fullness of him. Unless we get confused, he finishes, we're the fullness of him who fills all in all. It is Christ who fills all in all. He is the head, the exalted one whom we love, to whom we are connected. And so in order for us to begin to think rightly about leadership in the church, we have to understand whose church it is. It is Christ. He is the Lord of the church, first of all, because he's the head of the church. But secondly, later in Ephesians, we have another key truth, and that is this Christ is the only cornerstone of the church. Christ is the only cornerstone of the church. This comes to us in Ephesians chapter 2. Just flip over one page to the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, specifically at the end of this section. But before we get there, let me just bring you up to speed. Remember, we're just coming out of chapter 1 is what we just studied. He leads into chapter 2 to explain how it is that we became part of this body. How were we redeemed? He describes our life before Christ. He describes the sovereign work of God to bring us to salvation and that that is a gift by grace through faith. Each of us called into service then to serve him in verse 10. But beginning in verse 11, he begins to describe the fact that this, this wonderful thing called the church is, is something in which we are one unified group as Jew and Gentile. That the dividing wall has been broken down. He's brought us into one new group called the church. That's not to say there aren't promises to Israel that will later be fulfilled. It is to say in the family of God we are one. One gospel, one Lord, one head over the church. And then he gives us three illustrations of this unified body. He says, we're citizens of God's kingdom. We're members of God's household. 
And then finally, we're bricks in God's spiritual temple. And it's that third illustration that I want to turn our attention to here. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, uh, verse 19. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Notice that it says there, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Paul begins this explanation of us as God's spiritual temple by describing the foundation on which we stand. In a moment, he's going to describe that that Christ is the ultimate cornerstone, the the most important aspect of the foundation of the church. But before he does that, he mentions two other groups who also serve in, in a special way as part of the foundation of the church. He identifies the apostles and the New Testament prophets. Now, this is a sermon for another day, but the office of apostle and the office of prophet in this sense have ceased and, and they, that's because they've served the purpose of revelation for which they were given. They were given to give the revelation to the church that we now have here in the scriptures. God uh, verified them as his messengers. He verified their message. They wrote that down, and we now have that as a concrete foundation for the church. That's how they serve as part of the foundation of the church. It's here in the testimony of scripture. But we'll leave that for another time because here's the focus. He goes on to say, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, I've talked about this before, but just as a review, don't forget the importance of the cornerstone in architecture at this time. The cornerstone was carefully crafted. It was typically the largest foundation stone that that, that carried the bulk of the weight of the building. But not only that, secondly, the cornerstone was, was cut so precisely that all of the rest of the building was squared to that cornerstone. All the walls then were not only held up by it, but their very structure came from that cornerstone. That's what he's saying about Christ. The cornerstone not only held up the building, but set the pattern, dictated the pattern for the rest of the building. And so while it's true that the apostles and prophets played a role of revelation, laying the revelation on which the church would stand, Christ is the chief aspect of the foundation of the church because of ultimately his propitiation. By his blood, he purchased the church. And of course, we have the words of Christ revealed for us on scripture, in scripture as well. What that means then, just putting this all together, is that Jesus both presides over the church as the head and stands underneath the church as the support of the church as its cornerstone. Both the the foundation and the rulership of the church belong to one and one only, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see then that we are added on top of that foundation in verses 21 and 22, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God 
in the Spirit. The church is the spiritual temple of God as he resides in each of us by his Holy Spirit. And it says we're like, we're like bricks added on top of that foundation. And the, the spiritual temple of God grows in two ways. One, as new disciples or hear the gospel and come to repentance and faith, they are added as a new brick on that foundation. And so the building goes up as new disciples are added. But in addition to that, it, it speaks of this activity. It says that it's being fitted together and is growing continually. How, how does it continue to grow? Well, these bricks are not static. As we grow in holiness and sanctification in the truth, th- these bricks themselves are swelling and growing, and the building is being built up. And so it's built up in both ways. New bricks and the growth of each individual brick. Now, I've said all of that, and hopefully you understand now why these two truths are the correct starting place if we're going to talk about biblical eldership in the local church. In order for the church to be healthy, it's got to be unwaveringly committed at both the membership level and the leadership level to this great grand truth. That Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of the church. If you really think about it, adding men as elders to a local church is is nerve-wracking because at the end of the day, even the best of men are imperfect men. You know that. We're not adding perfect men. I'm certainly not a perfect man. We, We don't have any perfect options since the Lord has ascended to heaven. There are no perfect men. There are faithful men that we are to identify, but no perfect men. So how in the world can we as a church have confidence as we think about adding elders to this local church? Well, there's two things that I would ask you to keep in mind. The first is this. We need to choose men who not only meet the biblical qualifications in their character and giftedness, but who are also unwaveringly committed to the lordship of Christ over the church. That's number one. Number two, we simply have to trust the Lord of the church to keep his promise to build his church and to care for his body and his bride. He will do it. Ultimately, our trust is in him because he is caring for his church and building his church. Now, this is an exciting day for us at North Lake Bible Church. It's, uh, I can honestly say with a clear conscience before you, having known both of these men for multiple years, that these are, are two men who are not only unanimously recommended by not only myself, but all of the elders at Countryside Bible Church because they're qualified in their character and their gifting. But these are two men who not only understand, but humbly tremble at the idea that the church has one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not men who desire this role personally because they have some desire for a personal authority or power over the church. It's men who desire this because they love the Lord Jesus Christ, they love his word, and they love his church. And so they desire to serve him in this way for his glory. The truth is the elders' authority is a delegated authority. And it exists between the pages of this book. The elder's authority does not come outside of this book. 
It is contained within this book. That is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's head over his church, has given us the instructions for his church here. It's not the elder's job to come up with the mission of the church or the structure of the church or the doctrine of the church. That's not our role. Our role is to take the mission of the church, the structure of the church, the doctrine of the church, the philosophy of the church that our head has given us in this book and to stay close to it, to stick to it come what may. That is our role, simply to hold the line to the truth of what God has given, to love his people, to love his truth, protect his people, care for his people, equip his people. And so it is with joy that I present these two men to you along with the elders and ask you in closing to think about three things. Number one, I would ask you to pray for these men and pray for our church. Pray for them and pray for our church. I would ask you to pray for their preparation for this very important task. Pray for their protection from the evil one for their sanctification, growth, and humility, and for God to give them and I the wisdom that we need to lead in a way that's in accordance with his revealed truth. Secondly, I encourage you to encourage these men and their families. Speak to them. Tell them that you're praying. Tell them what you're praying for them. Assure them that your expectation from them is is not perfection, but faithfulness faithfulness in the work and certainly if you have some concern about their qualification go to them privately humbly and share that but also share your encouragement and then finally rejoice in Christ's provision rejoice with me as I said since our launch team began to meet in the summer of 2019 we have been praying for God to raise up faithful men so that we can have a local team of elders here in our local body. That's always been the desire. It's always been the goal. We've sought to do that with wisdom and with slowly. But today's a day of rejoicing because in response to your faithful prayers, the head of the church has responded. He has raised up men. He is raising up men. There are are other faithful men in this church that he's also raising up. God is faithful to do that. He will continue to do that for his bride, the church. And so it's appropriate that we recognize that what's happening today ultimately is not, not the elders raising up men, although we seek to equip men according to 2 Timothy 2.2. It's ultimately the head of the church that is raising up men faithfully to lead his church. And so we give him the praise that he's due. With that in mind, let's go to him now in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your headship over us. We confess freely, you are the head and the cornerstone of the church. You are the undisputed Lord of the church In no way do we seek to usurp that role in adding elders. We're simply responding to your leadership and direction in the the scriptures of how you desire for your church to function. But God, we humbly, gladly give praise to the Father for giving to us, the church, the precious Son as our only head. 
We do pray for these men and we pray for our church that you would help us to be faithful, help us to pursue you unwaveringly, be glorified in and through us. May we be the pillar and support of the truth. May we bring the gospel to the nations. May we equip the saints for the work of ministry. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.